Alright, well, getting back into things a little bit here. This is one of those, uh, well, this is a Star Wars, to put it as bluntly as I possibly can. Now, if you haven't seen the rest of my works, I'll try to explain that briefly. A Star Wars is something where everything just kind of stumbles and... And it turns into something amazing, as opposed to a Jurassic Park, where all the pieces are perfectly lined up, and it turns into something amazing. Peter Doctor, uh, when he was a kid, had several issues where, you know, he, he moved, and or rather his parents moved, obviously he went with them, and he just didn't fit in, and everything was awful, and, you know, it sounds familiar, and the idea just kind of sat there in the background. They've had this idea bouncing around for quite some time, not as long as the next film we're covering, actually, but it was an idea that was bouncing around the head of the Brain Trust, and it blossomed, and they decided to go ahead and start researching psychology, you know, Pixar, right? And looking into emotions and all that. They actually came up with about eight total emotional states, and they ended up paring it down to five for the course of the film. Like, okay, we got this. And then they started work on the film. Now, I want to mention two little anecdotes, because this amuses me. Now, if it's not obvious, I really like this film. I'm willing to put my top three into a top four to include Inside Out. But, um, well... John Lasseter wasn't really involved with this film. If you remember, after Cars 2, he was kind of relegated to other duties, more managerial and executive duties. So while he would actually still make decisions, he effectively, came, he effectively became one of the money people. He wasn't really involved in the actual creative side of things. Whether that's a good or bad thing, who knows, but it certainly was relevant for this film, which also didn't have any input from one other person who historically had input on these kind of films. Steve Jobs. So they, they're working on it. Okay, cool, cool. They, they try to workshop it around. They did have the brain trust working on things constantly. And when I say constantly, I mean this is another one of those films which went through so many different revisions. <laughs> massive, massive story restructuring. Um, not as bad as the next one, but I mean, for example, one of the original ideas was that Freddy, that is to say Fear, was actually the villain. And he was going to be the central antagonist of the film. One of them was that Bing Bong was the villain, and that he was going to be, he was a, a rebel rouser, I believe is the literal phrase that was used to describe him. Hell no, we won't grow. And the story was going to be all about, you know, clinging to childhood, clinging to the past, which if you're paying attention, is a theme they've already done. They also wanted this to be a comedy piece, and they focused on a few other things, and they looked at all of it and they're like, none of this works. And they were all staring at the whole thing. The whole thing was falling apart. And despite constantly workshopping it, it just it felt like they were going to go ahead and abandon the project. Mr. Doctor, Peter Doctor, got to the point. And this is, let's be honest, this is probably um, embellished a little bit. But I'm just going to tell the story as he tells it. He thought he was he, this is done. Like, this is going to be a career sinker for him. And he was actually legitimately considering quitting. Just, just quitting the company and walking away and just being like, yeah, no, I, I have I have failed miserably at making a good film. It's just not coming together and it's terrible. And he went out for a nice long walk. And as he's out there, it just sort of hit him in this massive wave of emotion of sadness. And as it was hitting him and as he was just processing that, it just kind of dawned on him that that emotional core is what the film was lacking. Because up until this point, Inside Out had been designed effectively to be another Cars film. 
lighthearted comedy focus, which was entirely centered around the, the pseudo interactions between uh, joy and fear and how they would play off of each other. You know, <laughs> they were trying for the buddy concept again, and none of it was processing, none of it was working. So with that revelation, he was like, that's it. And they went back and restructured almost the entirety of the central premise of the film and, you know, redid all the assets around it in order to try and make it sadness instead of fear that they interact with, uh, that Joy interacts with. Now, he was rather concerned about this, and indeed there was some rustling in the money people about this. I'm not sure why. Actually, I know exactly why, but that's going to be more relevant in the next film we cover. All I'm going to say right now is that Pixar was in a little bit of a slump right now. Now, I want to I want to add an asterisk to that. They were in a slump by Pixar standards, and you know how money people are. They don't look at how much money you're making as an as a net thing or as a, you know, relative to other things. No, they only look at, look at your money as relative to how much money you should be making. And what defines that should is entirely up to them. So, well, at this point in history, Pixar was simply not doing as well financially as it had before, and therefore it was failing. Now, I think this is total nonsense, although it is worth note that Pixar has, by several people, been considered to be in a creative slump pretty much ever since Cars 1. That being said, there have been some good films in here, and it is, it's kind of been doing this overall in quality, but, you know, make of that what you will. And again, this topic will come up more next film. But either way, despite the grumbling of the money people, the money people did decide to go ahead and give it the green light. And it's probably worth noting that the entire brain trust, which I think was like a grand total of seven separate people who were all involved in the writing on this one, all agreed this needs to happen. And so they listened to the team, as they should, and indeed it turned out to be a good thing. Financially as well, while this was a bit of an expensive film, it nevertheless made about $900 million, not quite breaking the B mark. Uh, Finding Dory would manage that. But, you know, managing pretty good return on sales. So, yeah, that, that tracks. Now, they... Uh, I'm, uh, is, is that it, actually? I'm looking at my notes here. It is worth noting that this delayed production... Now, for once, they actually did push back the release date. Unlike earlier times when, you know, crunch, get to the, get to the finish line, uh, they actually allowed them to push back the release date. Now, whether that was a good move or not is something that is not for me to decide. I'm going to give my opinion. I think it was an excellent move. It's funny, though, because there's another film that was in production at the same time that we'll be talking about next time. The fate of these two films is so interwoven, it's hard to describe it elsewise. But Good Dinosaur and Inside Out were both in production at the same time. Both had a massive overhaul mid-stride, and both had massive production issues. And both were allowed to be pushed back. There's a reason there's a relatively large gap in between uh, whatever we just covered, I think Brave, I think, and this. What was the previous film? Hang on, let me just check my notes for the previous page here. Uh... Oh, yeah, no, Monsters University. There we go. Which is funny, now that I looked that up, because the last big gap they had in movies was after Monsters, Inc. <laughs> go figure. There was one other delay. This is the one bit John Laster was involved in because they had come up with this technique. They wanted to have a unique visual style. I actually talked about how they would vary up humans to non-humans to, to accompany things. In this case, you'll notice that the humans are designed, while they are stylistic, obviously, they are designed to be more realistic than, say, Incredibles or, you know, several other films like uh, Ratatouille would be another good example. So they're designed to be re leaning towards realistic. 
And they also have been really working on their terrain stuff. I know I've been gushing about their terrain stuff in multiple films, including Back in Brave and going back as far as Cars, but they're really still pushing the envelope there. This is a surprisingly well-generated San Francisco and would end up being something that they would push forward into the other film, Good Dinosaur, as well. Here's the thing, though. They wanted the unique look to contrast the humans. So humans look relatively realistic, and the emotions need to look like uh, electrochemical is the is the phrase they use. They need to be this kind of a thing. So, okay, sure, let's look at them. Now, I don't know how many people even notice this, because it's really minor, but it is such a minor thing, which costs so much time and money to do, because it actually cracked so much of the rendering farms in half in, in order to be able to actually get this thing done. See, their skin isn't skin. It's not a single surface. It's a, it's a bunch of particles. They're effectively a outline of particle fields, which are animating and moving and generating and going away consistently. It adds to the, to the styling of them. Like they look like a, a, a electrochemical field. But what's even more interesting, and I never noticed this part before until I was watching it on, you know, the, the 4K thing. Um, their hair looks like electrical cabling almost. Uh, cabling's the wrong word. It looks like electricity stretched out is actually how I'd want to stretch, phrase that. Because they've got like the strands, but the strands aren't connected. This is most obvious on fear, but there's a few really close-up shots of both joy and sadness where you can see that their hair is just a series, a sequence, a string. It almost looks like code is actually what I would want to call that. It looks like a line of code that's just there dangling and it happens to be connected. It's, it, except it's not. It's not connected. It acts like it's connected. There we go. That's how I want to phrase it. It's some really cool stuff and apparently raised the budget on the film substantially by itself and was the kind of thing that the animators were like, Oh my God, how are we going to do this? Originally, they were only going to do it for joy. Lasseter was the one who said, Yeah, keep it in and do it for everyone. And everyone's like, you're kidding. But for all of the mud that can and has been flung at Laster, including by me, I will give him that animation was something he was legitimately passionate about, and simply pushing the animation side of things was absolutely the kind of thing he would push for. So we have the look of the film. Now, I want to mention one other last thing really quick here. This film came out only five months before Good Dinosaur. Now, again, that's going to be more relevant when we talk about that film, but I just wanted to give you that kind of historical uh, framing of exactly how messed up the schedule was at this point in time. Anywho, <clears throat> it sold very well. Like I said, $858 million. That's cool. That's cool. Now, uh, <laughs> Joy shows up. I'm going to fail. I just want to be very clear about this. I am going to fail at this rumination. There is so much to talk about, and there's so many complex topics here. And it kind of hit, hits the esoteric stuff that I that words kind of fail to describe. And so I'm going to fail to describe them. Because not only do I not have the tools, but I'm an idiot. So bear with me, please. First generation of emotion. First emotion that the newborn baby feels is joy. And we see an extremely simple console. It's just one button. That's it. And, uh, you know, the, the first memory kind of trickles in. And that's that's cool. Everything's cool there. I, I want to say something here, by the way. Just a little bit of my own personal historical bint here. Well, I enjoy this film. <laughs> well, I enjoy this film a lot. As I said, I'm willing to put it up into the top four list now alongside Cars 3. Uh, sorry, Toy Story 3. 
We haven't seen Garza yet. Uh, Toy Story 3, um, Wally, and The Incredibles. I do have to mention that I have a very fond memory of this film myself because this was the first film ever that I saw in theaters with my niece. That's how modern we've gotten at this point. She was already born and old enough to go to the theaters. And usually she would go to theaters with just you know her family, and I, I wasn't really included in that. Which, I, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it that way. It makes me sad, I'll admit it. I, I would love to be able to do that. Movie geek, love hanging out with friends, love taking care of my family. I mean, you know, of course I would want to do that. But it's okay, I understand, I understand. No judgment. It's not like they watch these videos anyways. But I bring all this up because it was unique watching her watch this. I mean, I'd seen films with her before, but mostly when it's just playing on the TV while she's actually doing something else and it's more of a background thing. This was fully encapsulating her attention. And while the audience was rather crowded with a lot of kids who were younger than her, she was into it. She was into it quite a bit. And I remember, you know, because I was sitting right next to her because she insisted on sitting next to me. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what's going on with that poor dog? He just got split in half. It's just fond memories. Moving on. So we see the tiny singular button. Perfect metaphor. The older we get, the more tools we have to deal with ourselves, our thoughts, and most importantly, our emotions. That, that's just, that's a straight. Uh, that one sentence encapsulates so much of that, doesn't it? Because it's true. The older we get, well, let me, let me walk that back. We are supposed to get more tools in our kit the older we get in order to be able to deal with our own thoughts and emotions. You know, I, I will go ahead and admit, as I've said several times, I have a temper problem. Now, I say that in the present tense because I do still have a temper problem. It's just nowadays I have hundreds of tools I've developed over 30 plus years in order to try and deal with that. When I was younger, that problem was a lot bigger of a problem. It was something that was a little more regular, whereas in modern times, the last time I actually lost my temper was during the Grand Theft Auto 4 run. Yes, I remember the specific incident because, well, they're kind of rare and I, I hate those incidents. It's terrible, like I said. But because I have all those additional tools, because my, you know, my, my, my control panel is so much larger with so much more on it, I have more that I can do with it. Everything's awesome. Not perfect. Wish I could just kind of eject that part of me, if I'm being completely honest, but, you know, whatever. So, this, this, this cuts forward a little bit. We have a, a little bit of an establishing sequence here. And by a little bit, I mean it is a full-on establishing sequence. Pretty much straight out of Monsters University. Or excuse me. I keep doing that. Monsters, Inc. It's, it's pretty much straight out of Monsters, Inc. Establish, 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 establish. And they do quite a bit of that right up until uh, the actual move. And... When I, what I mean by that is when the move concludes, when they get to school, is when, when they stop establishing. Because they just keep pushing ideas and concepts out there, ironically. Um, why isn't candy the best dinner food? Yeah. Now, what's interesting is the way Joy describes the other emotions. You know, fear is here to protect us. Disgust is here to help us, uh, both physically and socially. And anger is supposed to keep things fair. All of that's interesting. And then she mentions sadness. I don't know what sadness is here to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that lines up. <clears throat> then we show the islands and the core memories. Core memories help generate islands. Islands help develop uh, nuance and layers of personality. Okay, that makes sense. 
Core memories is a concept that arguably exists in real life. You could call them memory shatter points to really get across the idea. Singular individual moments of substantial significance that help to define who you are. I imagine, and again, you do not have to share because this will be very personal, but I imagine if you thought about it right now, you could probably think of significant core memories in your life. I know I could think of a few. I'd rather not think about a few, actually, if I'm being honest. They're probably more negative than, than good. Let's just be real here. But, I mean, I guess that's just life, right? Oh, my gosh. So, um, we have the core memories. We have the ideas. We have uh, the brain matter patterned maze and city in the distance. Which is actually pretty cool. Good, nice little visual thing. You notice the islands are different size, too, which I thought was kind of interesting. The family island is much larger and, as we see later on, is much more established, which makes sense. You're not going to value every aspect of your personality the same, right? I mean, I'm really into Formula One, but that Formula One island is probably relatively small compared to Video Game City. <laughs> you know? Sounds like... Here's an interesting question for you. Why does headquarters sit immediately over the nothing, the forget zone? Now, it makes for an interesting visual, and of course, it's necessary for the drama of the plot, you know, the threat that needs to exist. But why is it that way? Almost everything else in this film exists in a manner that makes sense when it comes to how we theorize human beings actually think and feel. So why is her central headquarters immediately above the nothing? I have my own theories on this matter, because, you know, I've been studying human nature since I was a kid. But I'm curious what yours are. So, I posit the question. You feel free to pause the video if you want to, but I'm going to go ahead and move on to the move. So, they decide to move. Why, uh... Why would you want to move into San Francisco? <laughs> I know, I know. There's implications that it's because of the fact that he's starting a bid big uh, business venture, so he needs to be closer to his actual uh, either uh, co-workers or customers, one of the two. They, they're really vague on the details, but you get kind of the idea there. And then, of course, there's the fact that the investment has kind of fallen through, but they need to go meet them in person and yada, yada, yada. It's, it's not like they're lacking in money. I decided to look it up. For those of you not aware, I actually used to live in the Bay Area. Not in San Fran itself. I was down over in... Oh, I can never remember the name of the place. Starts with an A. Just southeast of the Bay Area. I could point out, point in a map where I used to live. Anyways. Um, but uh, <laughs> I looked it up right now. In the And this is funny because they show us some of the streets and they show us some of the path they're taking in. They come in, actually it would be top. They come in through the Golden Gate. Because of course they do. I mean, I guess coming in from Minnesota, so that actually makes sense. Go across, go down the stupid road that, that's the big tourist attraction, which is an actual impressive in person. And then they go just a little bit further into like an alleyway-looking area. And there's several shots of this alleyway-looking area. And then there's the house kind of smashed up alongside the other houses. So we have a... I, I could narrow down probably within a block of where they live. So I did. And I looked up rent and costs there. Now, the cheapest house in that area was $700,000. The more expensive ones go for about $2.5 million. Now, that's honestly a little bit more of an indictment of exactly how terrible and awful real estate prices are. But I just wanted to point that out because it's not like they're doing badly financially. It's probably why he is comfortable enough moving to San Fran and going ahead and 
starting a business venture because they've got enough in the bank to be able to buy a house in San, in, in uh, northeast San Francisco, for God's sakes. Anyways, so, uh, you know, it's like, okay, we'll live, I've, I've lived in worse places. I can see why she would be so upset about it, though. One of the more common elements here is a, I don't want to say a lack of understanding, even though that is what it is. It's more like a lack of, well, having the tools to understand, lacking context and lacking development in order to really process certain things is a very recurring theme throughout this work. She doesn't see how ridiculous this house is and how expensive it would be and how much it indicates certain things. All she sees is this, this tiny place which doesn't have a backyard and her room is this stinky little place and there's a frickin' dead rat over there. And that's all she sees. And no judgment, of course. She is, after all, only 11. <clears throat> Meanwhile, um, broccoli pizza. I've actually had broccoli pizza. It's pretty good. You get some good cheese on there. Like, get, get a little bit of Parmesan and melt it over that. Ooh, yeah. But, of course... She hates broccoli. Funny fact, in several international versions, and please feel free to jump in if you're, if you're someone who's seen a version of this that didn't come out in the States. Apparently, they changed the broccoli to something else because it's a recurring theme. It's like, oh my god, broccoli. And then they changed it to other vegetables. Just feel free to jump in on that if anybody wants to. So, they, uh, sadness manages to change the tint of a memory. It really says all it needs to, doesn't it? That an emotion can put an overlay, a filter on a memory and make you see it from a different light, which makes it feel differently. I'll, uh, I'll use a personal example. Um, when I, uh, it was during one of my moves. I, I think I've talked before. I used to move constantly. I still do. I'm still something of a gypsy. I don't really have home in the strictest sense of the word. And hopefully I will someday. But anyways, uh, there was this one particular move and I was moving quite a bit of a distance. It was a long and painful, uh, move. Not the move, not the really bad one that almost led to suicide. This was a few years before that. But as I was leaving, I was just heartbroken because my dad was saying goodbye there. You know, he was, he was, he actually walked out to the highway, uh, on ramp and was there at the highway on ramp. I remember that. I could point it out again on the map. This was down in Carlsbad. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, getting onto highway five. And he was there and he was just waving and, you know, grief, sadness, sadness, grief. It, it, I cried for quite a while afterwards, but looking back on it with a different tint and a different perspective, that's actually a very fond memory. A pleasant memory, because my dad loved me so much to actually want to go out and say goodbye in such a manner, to take that extra step and show that he cared. So there you go. Personal and actual example of this kind of thing. I'm sure you can think of other examples as well. And I forgive me for talking all this stuff out, but I like showing the work that they clearly did in constructing this film, as ever. That is one of the things that fascinates me most, especially about Pixar films. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the Pixar block to begin with, because, because there's just this kind of thing to discuss, right? Now, this is when I make the note about the hair, because we start having the early shots. Notice that um, there's not a lot of complexity to their emotions, and there's also some dominant emotions in them. I want you to remember that, too, because that's going to come up in a minute. Uh, we also see an early shot of Bing Bong. I actually forgot to mention that. And so Goofball Island is the first one to go. Let me phrase that differently. Riley reaches a stage in which the simple pleasures, the, the really surface-level basic stuff that she used to enjoy, she can't anymore. Does that sound familiar? 
I actually would wager that probably over 90% of the people listening to me right now, including me, by technical definition, have experienced that exact sensation. You just, if, if you're really into, I don't know, it's makeup, PS3. You really like PS3 games, because I got the, it's not connected right now. And you, you, you just, you, oh yeah. And then, because that's how people play video games, right? I, I don't know, I'll pull at something specific. You're really into, what's a good PS3 game? Um, 3D Dot Heroes. And then you just can't enjoy it anymore. You sit down, you start playing it. <sighs> Nothing. Nothing's there. You know what that feels like, don't you? Now, that can spring from a lot of different sources. One of the things... I'll, I just want to preface this early. We're going to talk about this in more depth later. But one of the things they mentioned early... Um, let me actually stop. Rewind just a second. This is the most discussed... Uh, discussed not discussed, as in with a T, the most talked about uh, Pixar film that I've ever seen. I have never seen anyone else talk more about a Pixar film than this one. And it almost always boils down to interpretations. What I'm saying in this particular thing is just my own take on things, because that's kind of my job and that's how I do things. But as ever, this is only my take. And if anybody out there has their own takes that they want to share with things, please feel free to, because as always, we're going to do the hands gesture just to be as EA as we possibly can about this. But I, I bring that up because I felt it necessary to preface some, uh, you know, several of my own theories on the matter, which are only that, theories and opinions. Unlike with the train, I actually can distinguish my opinions from my facts. I'll admit, that got a really good laugh out of me, though. They look the same anyways. Don't worry about it. It happens all the time. <laughs> but let's go back to the ideas of uh, losing that idea, losing something. The... Uh, how do I want to phrase this? Having, we all have different reasons why we could go through such a situation like that. That's kind of where I wanted to go with that. And one of the more talked about ideas, and apparently this was in the intent by the creators, was to showcase depression. Now, I've talked about depression before on this show, several times actually. Very tentatively each time, because I always feel like, like it's touching a live wire, or rather trying to maneuver around a live wire where you're doing something very delicate and very processy. Because depression is a very complex topic that we don't actually fully understand, at least last I checked, and is something that is a very real problem. And I don't mean very real problem in the sense that if a meteor crashes into the Earth, we all die, although that would be a real problem. Instead, what I mean is it's a very day-to-day -day problem. There's a difference between the big crisis moments and the stuff you got to deal with every day. And depression is definitely one of the everyday kind of things, right? So, I've talked before about what I call, you know, chemical depression and situational depression. And the, the clear distinction between the two. I bring that up because it could very strongly be argued that what Riley is going through here is situational depression. She has gone through a big shift at a big time in her life when everything seems to be going wrong. Oh my god, sorry, my nose itches. And thus she is going through what could be called a depressive cycle. The argument has been leveled that she actually does suffer from chemical depression and that this is the kind of thing that is something that was going to happen long term. Within the realm of the fictional, I have an additional theory here. I think that what we're seeing here is a cause of depression that is cured. 
I'll cover more about that in a little bit, but to, to, in brief, just in case I forget to mention it, the idea here is that her emotion, because her emotions literally exist and functionally are a, a part of her brain, one of the emotions not being fully expressed or developed, thus, in other words, literal emotional stuntedness, a lack of growth or lack of development, has caused a situation that is functionally identical to chemical depression. In this case, however, it's possible for it to be cured because there's people running around in her brain which could run around and then fix the problem. Now, whether that's a thing that's applicable in real life or not is something I am not qualified to talk on. I wish I could get to sleep as fast as she does. And she's out. And they have a dream sequence. By the way, funny fact, they actually pull up a memory. It's literally a rose-tinted memory. That's cute. That's very cute. Uh, let's see here. I think we're on the second page now. Um, one of the original ideas, which they actually abandoned, was the idea of how people can be engaged. Not romantically. I mean, like, engaging you. You know, something that engages you. I'm going to keep using that word because it's important. Because it's all about the investment of the individual that causes a loop. It's not just something you're passively interested in, but something you are actively interested in. Okay. Now, this film does still touch on that, but most of that stuff was left on the drawing room floor. But I kind of want to talk about it anyway, so allow me to just talk about this for a second. <sighs> Riley is obviously at a point where she is developing mentally and emotionally. That's one of the core pre precepts of the film. And one of the things that people tend to learn, not always, of course, because not everyone's the same, and frankly, there's some people that don't actually grow up, but whatever... As they tend to grow up and as they tend to learn, they tend to develop the capacity for different types of engagement. To explain what I mean by that a little bit, um, in the one case, you know, going to the jungle gym, for example, to use something from the deleted scene, is very engaging. But sitting down and editing a, a Word document and trying to process it and make it work as, as, as well as possible is not engaging, Right. Wrong. There's plenty of people who find that engaging, including me, if I might be so bold. I actually am told I'm a very good editor. Probably a better editor than I'm a writer, actually. So that can still be engaging because that's mentally engaging. Now, obviously, a child still has the ability to be mentally engaged, since imagination. But you see how it takes a degree of understanding and growth and learning to realize that going to work is not necessarily boring or... There's nothing wrong with sitting and enjoying a, a lengthy concert or the idea of wanting to express yourself in a different way than, than what you did as a child. You know, those kind of developments are a, a very natural thing, a very uh, logical consequence of being able to be engaged physically, emotionally, mentally. And of course, these are not mutually exclusive. You can be engaged physically and mentally and emotionally, or just these two, or just these two, or just these two, if you prefer, depending on who and what you are. You know, I have said myself in the past that I could sit in a room with absolutely nothing and still be entertained because, well, because I had to learn that trick when I was younger. But it, it is nevertheless something that I, I learned, something that I came to my understanding because I can just keep myself engaged up here. Movies usually tend to hit me in this exact same manner. I mean, I'm just sitting here watching a film, right? I mean, obviously I've got this right here and I'm just going constantly as I'm watching. But you get the point. It's still a mostly passive thing, except for the fact that it is still engaging because it's getting my brain working and 
these are Pixar films. Let's be honest. It's getting the heart working too. Not literally, although I do you know, do stretches. I mean, like it's getting the emotions working too. Thus, engagement. The film, like I said, the finished product doesn't really touch on this in any significant matter. Although it does still serve as a background element because one of the biggest problems Joy has is she lacks the understanding of that further development and complexity of engagement, that there are other things that can engage you. And in different ways. Not everything has to be bright and happy and chipper, after all. So, <laughs> this is a perfect time to mention how sadness, you stand over here and get in this circle and don't leave, don't feel that sadness. I mean, the metaphor speaks for itself. Joy is literally smothering sadness. Come on. So then she goes to uh, to school, and there's this wonderful bit where she's looking at the kids, and, what, and one of the emotions, I forget which one, is like, oh my god, they're judging us. Oh, now that is a relatable thought. How many of you thought that? Don't lie. Because all of you have. At some point in your life, you have at one point had that, oh god, they're judging me, thought. I mean, I have. Totally raised my hand on that one. I still think that, actually. Then again, I'm constantly observing and analyzing other people, so I sort of assume at least some of them are doing it back, but... Getting back to the kids in school thing. You know what that feels like. Don't front. You know what that feels like to some extent or another. And so that causes her to break down a little bit more, and the sadness kind of just takes over. And because she hasn't been processing her sadness, she can't prevent it. She can't do anything about it. This is then manifested because Joy literally lacks the ability to undo what sadness is doing. And she starts crying on her first day of school. Ouch. Makes sense, of course. It it does. It really does. I uh I was lucky. I didn't have that issue because I moved constantly. So being the new kid in a new school was a regular. The biggest thing I had a problem with was bullies would come by and be like, "Hey, fresh meat," and then I'd have to beat the crap out of them, and then be like, "Okay," and then I get in trouble. So whatever. I'm just I'm just a, talk to the principal. I'm just establishing my turf. That's totally not how that would go. We see. The big scene, the one from the trailer. I don't know when they started doing this. Inside Out is the first film I noticed this at. So if anybody knows if they started doing this prior to now, please feel free to tell me. But this is when they started just taking scenes wholesale from the film, and that's the trailer. Now, I've actually talked about this concept before, but because this is the first time it really comes up, allow me to readdress those points. Point number one. Great idea. Because what it is is literally just a slice of the film gets across the concept. I mean, assuming you pick a good slice, usually they pick somewhere around the er the end of the first act when most of the stuff has been established, but they can still show off some things so you get across the pre premise and the concepts, again, concept pieces, and uh, you know, it, it's usually done in one of the humorous scenes, which again is towards the end of the first act before things start to get serious. So, slice in, here you go, here's a scene, cool. Downsides, it's a scene from the movie. So when you see the movie, it's like, okay, yeah, I saw this. Now, there is actually one film before this that I remember that pulled this exact same trick that is not a Pixar film. I, I mentioned this here because Pixar has been doing this as a matter of course for some time. But there was another film, and that would be Batman 2. I, I never remember which one. I think it's Dark Knight. Uh, not Rises. I think it's just Dark Knight. The, the Heath Ledger's The Joker one. That one. Because there's just the Joker scene, that which is just transplanted, and there you go. So you can see why it works. It also works because it means they don't have to spend extra time and effort on the trailer. There's a third reason why it works, too. 
I'm not going to go off on this topic, because I could. But I tend to be extremely anti-trailer at this point in my life. Now, that's partially because, you know, I, I think we're at a point where trailers have stopped being as relevant as they used to be, as a concept. But there's another reason, and that's because the trailer makers can go to hell. Remember, and I've talked about this many times before, the people who make trailers, this is true with games and movies, by the way, are almost always not the people who make the games and the movies. They're a trailer-making company. They are given footage, they're given reels and stuff, usually from the studio or the publisher rather than the actual uh, developers or creators. And they sit down and they make a trailer. And they follow... It's so goddamn rote. You can, you can practically predict every trailer that has come out in the last five years, probably longer than that, honestly, probably closer to 10 years, from the first three seconds. It's like, oh, okay, it's this kind of, you can just pause it and say, this is the type of film it is, this is the type of scenes that'll be in the trailer, and then you unpause it, and then you're right, right? But so it's, it's completely by the numbers. And then there's the fact that they tend to take no care into actually getting across anything creatively with the trailer. They don't do anything with it. It's just, hey, here's this film. And you should see it because it falls into one of these, I think it's five, broad categories of films. So go watch it if this happens to be a category you're interested in. Now, you could say that makes financial sense, and I would argue strongly against that for the same reason I tend to be against the idea that AAA development has to be as bland as possible. But I'm getting a little bit off topic here, so let's try to bring this back into the focus. The point here is that a trailer can accomplish many things. But the two most important things are the same damn things that I've talked about for years when it comes to the cold opens over at the beginning of Star Trek. The stuff that happens, you, know, you hit the, hit play, a scene happens, or well, a sequence of events happens, and then it cuts to the opening title crawl, and then the rest of the episode, that's the cold open, that section right there. Forgive me for for explaining that, but I don't know how many of you watch my Trek stuff, and I'm, you know, I've been covering for like 10 years at this point. And the cold open and the trailer should should both accomplish the same two things. Thing number one, it's for people who are already invested in it. So it gives them a taste of what they're getting into. People who are already into this type of film or into this franchise or into films in general and are just, you know, wanting something. And thing number two, for people who aren't. And therefore, you're trying to sell them on it. So you got to get them engaged. you got to get them interested. And yes, I use that word on purpose, the engaged thing. You get them, huh, you kind of pique their interest in some way. And there's a lot of stuff creatively you can do with trailers, too, which a few films have over the years. Not many, but a few. You actually showcase something that enables you to look at it and be like, oh, so it's this kind of a film? Wait, why did that happen? So does this work this way? And the more questions that are prompted in the mind of the audience, the better. Because the more questions, the more they're engaged. The more they're thinking about it, the more they're likely to actually go see your film and hopefully actually enjoy it. This brings me all the way back to this film. Sorry for the segue. Because now, this method, this approach, kind of perfectly fits this. The catch is you have to very precisely choose which scene you slot in. Because you don't want to give away too much, and you don't want to give away too little, and you do still want to engage them. Like I said, it's, it's, it, is, it is an art. There's an art form to designing a good cold opening. And there is an art form to designing a good trailer in the exact same manner. I would say that Zootopia, which pulled this trick too, by the way, didn't pick the perfect scene for this. By contrast, this film, I think, did. They picked 
the best possible scene they could have done for this because it's the argument between Riley and her two parents. And so we get to see the base premise, you know, kid problems at home. Not real problems, just, you know, it's, it's a bad day. And then we get to see the zoom in and we get to see the, the emotions that are actually, you know, the core premise here. And then we can see the mother's emotions and then we can see the father's emotions. It gets across enough to work almost perfectly as that teaser, that coda, that, tra- uh, not coda, wrong word, uh, that cold open, sorry, cold open and coda. You can see why I get those confused, even though they're totally opposite of each other. And thus, this was actually a really good trailer, in my opinion. This is also the scene that a lot of people talk about the most. Allow me to disagree with most of the things that I've heard people say out there. No, really. The mother is dominated by sadness. The father's dominated by anger. These are terrible. Okay, so, first of all, I do think that is doing it a little bit of a disservice because it's think of it too simplistically. It is directly comparing their mind setups, their emotional setups, to Riley's. In Riley's case, joy is absolutely dominating. And as the film shows, that's a bad thing. The film makes that very clear that's a bad thing and makes it clear that that's something she grows out of. So, do you think her parents are still in that state? Or do you think they have grown out of it? Now, it's worth noting that not everyone grows up emotionally and mentally, as I alluded to earlier. But the implication is still there that they have nevertheless managed to develop to the point where not one emotion is dominant. Point number two. They show that. If you pay attention, the mo- let's use the focus on the mother for a second. The mother's a council. They all have an equal chair at the at the panel, and each of them have their own little section they can interact with, and they all interact with each other and talk to each other as they're determining what to do. It it is effectively a full democratic situation, like not not a like a government type. I mean, an actual democracy where each each vote is a relevant vote, and each one then has to be decided upon in order to do stuff. Right. So that kind of shows, and I I don't know why people say this. That shows very clearly, in my opinion that she is more advanced, more developed emotionally than her daughter. Because, of course, she is. She should be. Cut to the dad. Now, first of all, the dad's thinking about hockey. I'd make fun of that, but I've done the same type of thing. Not at the dinner table. That's just rude. But, you know, I I have engaged myself by just mentally thinking about a game, usually a video game in my case. Uh, But, you know, sports are cool, too. I'm with it. Not into hockey, though. I never learned to skate. Um... But what we see there is a not quite the same situation, because what we have over there is more like a dictator's council. Anger is the person who's making the calls, but he can't make the calls by himself. He still gets buy-in, they still report to him, and he still makes decisions, but he can't do things without their say-so. That's why I say the council kind of a thing. It's more like a group of aristocrats, if if you want to use a governmental type, you know, who are in charge of the operations. You'll notice that it's specifically disgust and fear that are the ones that have to be the ones to turn the key in order to make the foot be put down. And they both have to approve of that, as that system implies. Now, in this case, they do, but you might wait, wait, why fear and disgust? Well, fear makes perfect sense. Gotta, gotta be careful, gotta be cautious. You don't want to put the foot down unnecessarily. Even Anger points out that he doesn't want to put the foot down unnecessarily. Disgust a little bit trickier, but remember, disgust is mentioned as also being something that is specifically social, and thus should probably have a say in whether or not you try to take a hard-line stand with someone 
socially. So that lines up too. In either case, both of them have their little thing. And because Riley is going through some form of depression, whatever it is that you actually decide on, again, feel free to chime in in your own thoughts here, she's just not really responding emotionally the way she should. The mother picks up on this immediately, observant. The dad doesn't know how to deal with this immediately. Credit where it's due, not too long after, probably just in the minutes range, he goes right back up to her room, or rather right up to her room, to try and reach out to her. This is when the the last of Goofball Island really comes in. I already referenced that earlier. But this also makes sense because, you know, he's trying to reach out to her in a way that has always worked and currently isn't. And thus, this is now new territory for him, too. So that's fun. Now, we cut down to uh, Joy and Sadness, who are out in the woods at this point, out in long-term memory. Mind workers, because of course, there's actually quite a few of them throughout the course of this film. And they're getting rid of old memories, because that just, yeah, that just makes sense. But there's also a little bit of exposition there, too, if you caught it. The less the memories are accessed, the more they fade. The more they fade, the more they are cataloged for deletion, tossing it into the pit. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how that works. We actually have a decent enough amount of evidence to say that with hesitating certainty. It's something I learned as a pretty, pretty young as a kid and something I have practiced ever since. It's the idea of regularly remembering events. Not just passively, not just thinking, oh, you remember that one time. No, actually put your... Here, do this with me right now. Picture something. Do I have to tell me what? Picture a specific event. I've already picked mine. Uh, and picture what was what you could see around you in that moment. Picture what you smelled. Picture how it felt. Was it hot? Was it cold? Were you tired or irritable or itchy? How did it feel emotionally? What was going through you at the time? What were you thinking at the time? And the reason... this So this was the exercise that was taught to me, again, at a very young age. I think I was seven when this was first taught to me. Um, and the idea is that the more you access your memories the stronger they are. Now, there is a caveat there because there's a really good chance that, especially when you're young, when you start designing those memories and and processing them, what you're doing is you're effectively painting over the memory. This is, again, how it was described to me. So as you're painting over the memory, it might not be 100% accurate. In fact, it is probably not 100% accurate as to what the original event was. And over time, as you go to remember that, what you see is the painting, not the memory, and it can exaggerate over time. This is actually one of the reasons why I like to go back and uh, do what I call Google Map walks. I don't know what else to call that. You ever do that? Pull up Street View and just pull up a place that you used to live at or used to be around and, you know, literally physically see what it looks like now. It's like, oh, that used to be that thing. And I used to walk down there and that's where that used to be. It helps to ground it, at least for me. And it's something I do semi-regularly, again, to try and strengthen those memories. As I've said before, I actually have a pretty strong and good memory, and I do exercise that memory regularly, and that's one of the reasons I think why it is what I would consider to be a good memory. So so I love this idea as presented in the film, that she doesn't exercise all her memories, so they just kind of go over time. Sense make. <laughs> this also leads to... Um, probably one of the funnier scenes in the film. I'd say the third funniest. Triple mint. Sorry. Anyways. So, this then leads to them taking a shortcut and going through abstract thought. 
ha-ha, very visually amusing and entertaining. They go down to Cubist, to 2D, to, well, uh, effectively just shapes at that point. Very cute. And it looks like they have to abstract normally in order to try and process and understand thoughts, which actually makes perfect sense, so that's cute. Then they get to the clouds area. I just want to mention something very quickly. I've been talking about the technological advances Pixar has been making through these films. You notice I haven't really brought anything up for a while because they kind of peaked in many ways back in Toy Story 3 with the um, the particle thing. You know, the, the, the hundreds and thousands of little particles in the trash heap I talked about. They did, they had to come up with a new tech to render clouds because they didn't, they never really rendered clouds before. They were part of a skybox, something that was effectively painted. And so they had had to come up with this new tech to actually render clouds as a three-dimensional object. Now, the only reason I mention this here, other than the obvious cloud jokes, is because it's something that has a relevance for the next film, as indeed that was one of the biggest technological leaps they had to make for the good dinosaur. Also, forget it. It's Cloud Town. That got me. That got me. I, I know that's later, but I had to comment on it while I was thinking about it. So, naturally, uh, this then leads to her imaginary area and her imaginary boyfriends. I would die for Riley. No, I'm not going to make fun. <laughs> Although I could comment on Twilight. It's okay. They're from Canada. It makes perfect sense. So, she can't play hockey as well. Yeah, that tracks. No, it really does. The amount of sense-making this movie does is part of why I enjoy it so damned much. How many of you are good at something? Now, I expect 100% of you to answer, yeah, no, I'm good at something, because there's always at least something, right? Well, I don't see, I didn't, I didn't mean like perfect, or the best in the world, just you're good at something, right? Well, let's say you're going through some stuff, emotionally, mentally, you're tired, you're distracted, you've got a lot going on, it's been a long day, and you just don't, operate at peak efficiency because you're so distracted and you're so tired and you're so emotionally worn out and so she sucks at hockey even though by all accounts she's actually quite good at hockey yep makes perfect sense to me this then leads to uh (laughs) this immediately leads to a sequence she loses hockey island and as a consequence, the uh, the wagon, the red wagon, the, 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 the Bing Bong's vehicle goes falling off into the abyss, into the nothing. It's like, oh my god, no, and he's very sad about this. And Joy tries to cheer him up in order to get him to deal with this, and it fails miserably. This is when the film makes that point I've already made earlier very, very clear, that Joy is smothering the other emotions and that not only is it not working it's gotten to the point of being actively unhealthy it is not until sadness comes over and allows him to have a good cry to be sad and thus process the feelings in order to be able to move forward that's the thing you ever talk you ever hear someone talk about don't bottle up your emotions what that really means is don't allow your emotions to just sit there unprocessed i keep using that word on purpose by the way a a, a giant chunk of wood is fine and good, but until it's processed, it'll never be this, right? It needs to be processed to be turned into something, to be worked through, and that is very, very, very true mentally and emotionally. We need to process our thoughts and feelings, otherwise they just sit there. And if we're actively smothering them, 
bad things can happen. This is when they do the facts and opinions joke. I, I actually laughed out loud so hard I, I did this, even though I'm, you know, we've got decent walls here, so usually you don't hear the neighbors, and they probably don't hear me. I hope they don't hear me because I talk in here constantly. <laughs> That'd be embarrassing. But yeah, yeah I, I laughed so hard I, I was embarrassed about that one. Anyways, <clears throat> so then they go down to her subconscious, which includes her fears, which for some reason includes a vacuum and broccoli. Oh, and a clown. And then a clown breaks out of her subconscious. I don't even know what to say to that, so let's just move on. I feel like we have a bit of the Matrix problem here, where the analogy starts to break down after a certain point because they're showing things a little bit too literally. That being said, I wanted to comment on something really quick. I've never had the teeth falling out dream or the you didn't dress dream. I know those are like the two most commonly talked about dreams. I've never had either. I've had the vomit stuck in my mouth dream. That's a fun one. It's it sucks, and I have to like carve it out with my hand. I've, I'm sorry, that's really gross. I should have warned you about that. It it is very gross. It's quite unpleasant. I usually have to wake up and swish my mouth because of how much it, it, the the lasting impression is there. It's terrible. But I I don't have the the teeth thing. Anywho, <clears throat> so we find out that the movers not only aren't there but went to the wrong state. I mean, Texas is a little bit away from California, especially when you're going from Minnesota. This reminds me of a little bit of a life hack here. You ready for this? Very simple. Don't use a mover. I'm dead serious. If you if you can avoid it, if you can avoid, don't use movers. I have never heard anything good about movers. Now, I've never used them myself because I'm so used to it. Again, I've been moving around like a gypsy for forever, so I just move myself. Or I have my friends help me, and then I buy them expensive meals. But the point is, don't use a mover. Just don't. Moving on. So, losing her honesty causes her train of thought to derail. You know, that makes a weird amount of sense. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a good time to go ahead and mention something. I like to show my work on specifics. So, finish this sentence for me. Mater is a... Isn't it funny? Okay, cool. Now, having done that, remember how they hit that point over and over and over and over and over? Remember how I spent time discussing the specifics of how to do a recurring gag? No, of course you didn't, because you didn't watch the Cars 2 Rumination. I don't blame you, because it's Cars 2. But I'm just going to reference that, plug, 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 because they use a similar technique here, but to much better effect. A grand total of four times they reference the triple mint gun, gum thing. And what's funny is each time there's a bit more of a gap before they reference it again. Again, going back to how you should use a recurring gag, mathematically, formulaically. Anyways, I just wanted to comment on how this film does at least one thing objectively better than Cars 2. So, she decides to run away. Uh, how many of you have ever tried to run away from home? I'll raise my hand on that one. My runaway attempt was pathetic and terrible. I've, I've actually told this story before. It was up in Colorado at this point. I was seven. <laughs> and uh, seven or eight, actually. I'm not sure the exact timing on that. Because, uh, you know, I'm a weirdo. But I didn't get very far. In fact, I got to the driveway. It was really cold, and it's Colorado. But uh, I've seen kids try to run away before. And in every case, it's the same concept. They're very hurt or very upset about something, and they don't know how to process it 
And because they lack proper understanding, they think they should simply need to get away, get away from the problem. Now, there's a logic to that. You can see why they would want to do that. You can also see why it's a terrible, terrible idea in most cases. I, now, I'm talking about situations where there's an actual loving, caring family. Obviously, if there is not, then that's another and much, much worse problem. Let's take those horrible, horrible problems and put them over there. Not out the window. Those need to be dealt with, but... You know, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about an actual loving, caring household like the one shown in this very film. Without proper understanding, without proper concepts, they don't understand how absolutely terrifying and dangerous what they're doing is. Now, how dangerous this is varies, obviously, based on what country you live in and what state and what county and what city, what neighborhood. You know, it varies because of environment. In some cases, this is an absolutely horrific thing. In some cases, it's not super bad, but it's still pretty bad and can lead to some very bad consequences. Like uh, just in this case, for example, it could lead to um, the dad having to abandon an important business meeting, which could torpedo his investment plans, which could torpedo his new ideas at whatever business he's trying to push. And there goes the big dream, right? Now, he would probably do that in a heartbeat to immediately drive up to Minnesota and get his daughter back. I have no doubt he would do that. But you can see how that would be a consequence. And consequence, and lack of understanding of consequence, is one of the biggest things that people learn as they grow older, or at least should learn. She also almost lost her ability to feel sad permanently, which may not sound terrifying to you, but that is pretty terrifying. So they fall into the ocean of the nothing. I haven't talked much about the themes of this film because it's hard to do so. It, most themes can be expressed with a sentence. I'm not sure a paragraph would do in this case. There is a complexity to emotion and thought that is hard to properly express because by its very nature it is a multidimensional thing. Sadness is a word that implies many, many, many things and can be stretched out to an entire array of different concepts and ideas and emotions that all make up that fabric. Same with joy, same with blah, 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 all these emotions. That show. But most emotions in general could fall into this category. It's, there's a reason why, at least in English, we have like 50 words for every given category of emotion because there's so many different layers and nuance to what we feel, how we feel, and why we feel the way we do. Emotion's a very messy, dangerous, careful thing. Naturally, Joy is very, very sad here. The core memory that she sees as she's going down there was actually a sad one. She doesn't realize this until she's in the nothing, until she's in the pit. As she rewinds, it was a sad memory that morphed into a joyful one. Because she was sad... Because she expressed the emotion she was feeling and didn't lock it away and didn't, didn't, didn't push it down, but because she processed that and expressed that, it was able to lead to everyone rushing over and trying to cheer, to cheer her up, which led to the joy. It was literally a yellow and blue emotion. This understanding just hits her like a ton of bricks. And the actress does a really, really great job here, by the way. By the way, I'll go ahead and admit, Pixar Tears moment right here. I'll admit that without hesitation. So Bing Bong is like, okay, we've got to get you out of here. So they find they find the wagon. They get it out and they try and they fail and they try and they fail. And they get very close each time. And it takes a bit. And you see Bing Bong kind of realize what's going on here. This is literally true. He's weighing the wagon two down. 
but also metaphorically true. He was something that needed to go. Imaginary friends can, this, this is a heavily debated topic, can be a good thing for a child's development. But most people tend to agree imaginary friends should go away after a certain point and be replaced by real friends, actual connections with actual people who have the complexity and depth to actually process their own thoughts and emotions, push them out so that you receive them and process them back. I've actually talked about this before. I forget which film. It was one of the previous Pixar films we covered. Sorry, I've been going through a lot here. But it is that that's human development. That's droid effect. And it's not sure, you know, the, 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 we connect, uh, Wally. It was Wally specifically. External ideas and concepts introduced, which you then take and then you push out your own, which they then take and push out your own. And that, that's development right there, right? So he needed to go. That imaginary friend needed to, because he was metaphorically holding back joy. So he fades, and I'm actually going to go ahead and be honest here. Pixar Tears moment number two. That sacrifice is, is beautiful in its own way, but even if you abstract it for a second, what that means is that her own mind was willing to let go of her childhood in order to take care of her present. And that's way more powerful emotionally than it really has any right to be. They, they finally freak out over the runaway plan and start to try to remove the idea. Nope, that idea is locked in. Yeah, that tracks too. How many times have you had an idea that you just, you just can't get unstuck there in your head? And it's like, nope, stay the course. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it isn't. Yeah. And then, oh, then the film really starts to hit the depression point because her console starts to go gray no emotions no feeling none of her none of her emotions can interact or affect it she just stops feeling and then look at her face from that point up until then there was still hesitance or anger or certainty or fear or whatever but as soon as she actually gets on the bus as soon as the console starts to go gray her face goes dead just blank and that is depression right there i'm not sure which variety there's 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 many variants. There's many there's there's an array there, as I talked about earlier. But that right there, when you simply lose the ability to feel, yeah. This then leads to the big thing where it's like, oh god, we need to deal with this and we need to process this, and we have the big action sequence and we smash up there. Disgust manages to get anger, angry enough to melt down the door. The metaphors are, are losing me at this point, but it gets to the relevant point. Sadness goes up and manages to remove the idea because the sadness of what she's about to do is what really sticks with her here. Oh yeah, by the way, you notice the family island was the last one to go, went in pieces, and was the most sturdy overall because it's the largest part of her personality, like I was talking about earlier. And then she she touches the, the console. And then sadness. Well, let me use a different word, because I think this word actually better suits it. Grief. Sheer, raw grief crashes over her like a wave. Pixar tears moment number three, by the way. Because she hadn't been, again, literally because of joy, but also metaphorically because human beings, she hadn't been allowing herself 
to process. She hadn't been allowing herself to feel what she was feeling. So it just sat there and it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And she started being in unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. And when the grief finally strikes and she's finally able to express that and deal with it and process it is when her parents and lord knows what's going through their heads right now by the way sorry <laughs> the reason the biggest reason why inside out sits so high on the list for me isn't because of the technical achievements or because of the jokes or anything like that those are good don't mistake me but what gives it that extra oomph to be in the top four is how powerfully emotional it is, which I suppose is appropriate. And it's funny because if you were paying attention earlier, I mentioned that all of that was effectively a mistake. It was something that wasn't even part of the film. But when Mr. Doctor had his revelation and he shared it with the rest of the brain trust and they all agreed and started processing the film into it, you can see how it became the emotional core of the film. This went from being a silly buddy comedy picture to being an emotional character piece and allow me to be blunt, emotional character pieces is what Pixar does best. You remember that scene towards the end of Monsters University? That that simple scene with, with two monsters sitting on the edge of the lake talking? It was one of the best scenes in that whole film. What about the scene where Brad opens up to... I think his name is Brad. Uh, Mr. Incredible just opens up to, yeah, it's Brad, to his wife about how much he, he feels like he's not strong enough, how he can't do this, how he can't face the idea of losing his family because they're so much more important to him than all the rest of that crap that he thought was important, but all dwarfs in comparison to them. I could name other examples. I'm going to stop because I, I could just go down the list at this point. But that core emotional character-driven strength, that's Pixar. And that's what this movie does so, so well. And so because of this moment, she has, Riley, has a first. Her first memory that has more than one color. Her emotions are starting to get to the point where they are developing into complexity, into something more than just a binary or simple thought, but instead a more complex and nuanced thought. Because again, that's how emotion and thoughts work. As we develop, we get the things that can make you feel all kinds of things. Within the space of a second, you can feel a kaleidoscope of things. So, film starts to wrap up. We get the new console, lots more buttons, lots more space. Makes sense, more complex, more nuanced. We also see that several of her memories now have mixed things, you know, not other colors mixed in, not just joy and sadness. And there's this puberty button over there. What's that? That's eh, not important. Don't worry about it. Now, I have to admit, there's another reason this film is so, so beloved by me. And it's because of one joke. It is, and I say without hyperbole, what I consider to be the best joke in all of Pixar. Girl. Girl. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. I just watched this today. It's still making me laugh just thinking about it. Oh, God. Been there. Been there. <laughs> Whew, yeah, no, that's, that is is 100% accurate, whoever did that. But what we see, we see what I probably consider to be the best credit sequence. You know, there's, there's always these, well, there's not always. There's usually these credit sequences after the film. 
this is probably the best one. The jump into the minds of different people we've met throughout the film as we're going. So we see the teacher who's just like, oh my god, I hate my job. Which isn't funny, actually. That's terrible. Uh, then we and we jump into the goth girl who's like, oh god, everything sucks. Then we jump into the popular girl who's just like, oh my god. Oh, this is so exhausting. And did they say this? No, no, we can't say that. It's too terrible. And, and they, they jump around. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. They jump through every one of them. It's, uh, it's really cool though. There's, there's this one last joke. Triple mint gum. Like I said, they do the recurring gag properly. But, uh, then we cut to the dog. I smell food. Human has food. We should get the food. Agree, agree. And then we cut to the cat brain and nobody's at the controls. Except for this one cat who's just playing with the controls. And then the cat starts freaking out. And <laughs> Yeah, I know. That all tracks. I like this film. I like this film a lot. And I am very nervous and looking forward to your comments on it. I do hope you've enjoyed. See you next time.